Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season three, episode four. Today, we'll be discussing hip arthroscopy, label repair, and hip preservation surgery. I also have our co-host here, Mike Reeves. Hello, everyone. So, Mike, what kind of inspired this episode was I have a complicated PAO, periacetabular osteotomy and labral reconstruction patient on my caseload. So the way that I wanted to kind of structure things and kind of go through this episode is kind of just reviewing the rehabilitation for a labral repair, labral reconstruction, and getting our mind wrapped around that, then looking at periacetabular osteotomy, just kind of using a layered approach. Cool. Sounds like a good point. All right. So let's jump right into it. So usually the only time they do a reconstruction is when the labrum's not repairable, there's irreparable damage to the labrum, and they use either an autograft or allograft from a gracilis or hamstring tendon. Sometimes they'll do iliopsoas fractional lengthening when the patient had internal snapping of the hip or a corresponding iliopsoas impingement lesion of the labrum. And then while they're in there, you can go in and do whatever they feel is necessary, bursectomy of the trochanteric bursa, kind of try to repair any glute med tears, iliotibial band release if there's any snapping of the IT band, pretty much any impairment they find in addition to the actual labor repair reconstruction, they can go in there and address during the arthroscopy. Yeah, I think that kind of brings up a decent point where like, if you see someone referred to you with a hip arthroscopy, remember that that's just kind of like a crap term. They could have done a whole bunch of stuff when they were in there uh, to make sure that you, if you don't have access to the op report right away, try and get that uh, because it could potentially change your, your rehab significantly, especially if you live somewhere or or work within a system where the surgeon just kind of gives the same protocol for everyone. Um, Then at that point, you kind of have to use your own clinical judgment a little bit, make sure you're not going to do anything that creates discomfort for this person or, potentially messes up some sort of little part of the surgery that the surgeon did. Right. A hundred percent. You really got to read that op report and see what they did. And that's going to definitely influence how early or how delayed you start different exercises and what your exercise selection looks like so that you're not overloading certain tissues that were either repaired or lengthened or adjusted in some way during, during the surgery. Now, the interesting thing is that this protocol that, that I kind of follow is based off a study that looked at two-year outcomes and it demonstrated great outcomes after two years from hip labral repair surgery. And one thing of note is that they did perform a preoperative program that was one month prior to surgery. So they did prehab prior to getting the surgery. And it doesn't really go into detail as to what that prehab was. I think it was just your general strength and conditioning, keeping them strong, keeping them loose, keeping them mobile as much as they can within their pain tolerance. And then the patients were actually fitted for a hip brace that limited their hip flexion beyond 90 and their abduction beyond neutral. And that's just to protect the labral refixation. So the, you, you kind of talked about the reconstruction versus the repair. I guess we'll probably talk about the repair in a little bit, but I'm curious to see, because I, I haven't done too many of these in a long time. I honestly, most of my experience with these was a few years ago. Like I haven't had really any in the past couple of years that I've been working where I'm at now. I just don't think we have any surgeons that do any sort of high volume of them. So yeah, so I'd I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the differences between the kind of like post-operative protocol for like a reconstruction versus repair, or if there are really any differences. Yeah. So following this article, there are no differences. I 
haven't looked at any studies regarding like the quality of using like the gracilis or hamstring tendon and how that affects the actual quality and dispersion of, of the joint reaction forces after surgery. And if that progresses to any chronic osteoarthritis or anything like that, but essentially the rehab is somewhat similar. Gotcha. And uh, obviously we have kind of like our two big kind of types of impingement. We have kind of our, our pincer and our cam that are often the times that lead to these labral issues. What type of impingement are you more likely to see issues on the acetabular and, and, and labral side? Or, and does that change where they might be doing the repair or does it just? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to kind of go off left field, which is very on brand for me. So for all the listeners, take this with a grain of salt, but um, I guess that's, uh, that might be why you tune in. You like to hear all the left field crazy stuff I say. So I think pincer is going to be more of like the acetabular, like over encompassing the femoral head. That's going to be, I think in my opinion, just more of like a genetic thing. It's just they tend to have more coverage where with the cam impingement, I'd be interested to see almost like a predictive study that just took like a sample of like 200 healthy people, take x-rays, take all the imaging that you need to kind of get the information that you would want to look at as far as tracking the progression of a cam type of a formation that would create hip impingement and then see those that develop hip pain. If there's any progression of that bony growth on the femoral head. So I kind of have this theory that the cam impingement, the increased bony growth on that femoral head is less of the cause of the pain, but more of a symptom of the movement and how the the femoral head is being stressed. And then bony growth is just being deposited in that area because of the repetitive stress on the femoral head and the labrum in that specific area. So they've done studies in like soccer players and like hockey players, like, like youth athletes, right? Where in theory, you're going to be adapting like crazy and youth soccer and youth hockey, um, male specifically have much more growth of that kind of like posterior aspect of like the femoral neck where you get your cam impingement from. So you're, even though you haven't read the study, you're right. But it, it, it seems like that kind of like extension, external rotation, abduction force adds to that kind of posterior aspect of the femoral neck. Yeah. And Shirley Sarman has done some research looking at like, I think hers was like a predictive computerized model. So it wasn't the best study, but it basically simulated different muscle recruitment patterns. And it looked at joint reaction, sorry, not joint reaction, anterior joint stress. And what she found was that when the hamstrings contributed to hip extension and the glutes contributed less so to hip extension, that it actually increased anterior femoral joint forces. And what I'm thinking is, is I hate to bring it back to the glutes, but is someone that has some weaker glutes, more hamstring dominant, and they're doing a lot of those hip extension type activities, are they predisposing themselves to increase in anterior hip joint forces that increases the force through the certain areas of the femur in the front? And then they end up developing these bony growths and then can cause impingement and wearing down of the labrum. Yeah, maybe. I mean, do you think that comes back to like the kind of like extension, external rotation that the glutes are going to create and just hundred percent pressure off that anterior hip? hundred percent. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like what ends up happening is a little bit of excessive, like anterior femoral translation is the way she describes it. That stresses that superior anterior portion of the hip joint. Now I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent concrete evidence, but she's developed different theories and computerized models to look at this. And I don't read into it too much on like 
the level of where I'm like detecting micro movements of the hip to see if there's any translation, but more I'm just noting, okay, having weak glutes can definitely increase your anterior hip joint stress and strengthening the glutes is really low risk, high reward. So let's strengthen it. I think the only argument for the opposite of what I'm saying is that I know there's probably studies out there that have looked at a bunch of different hips and the progression of the cam lesion or the cam uh, formation that would contribute to that bony growth in the femoral head it isn't always correlated or corresponding with the level of pain or impairment that patients have. So I think that would make some people question the relevance and say, well, there's people that have some pretty progressive bony growth through that femoral head and their pain's not that bad. And then there's someone that has a little bit less or significantly less and they have way more pain. So like, is it even relevant? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's definitely relevant to some extent, right? Like if, if, if anatomy matches up with symptoms, right, just because some people are like wild people and can adapt through these crazy situations that their body is in doesn't mean that it's like completely normal. I mean, like, it's kind of like for a surgeon, it's like, what do we do as therapists, right? When in, in the absence of something that just like makes perfect sense, it's like a clear cut diagnosis. We just treat the impairments that we find and hope for the best, right? So if someone sends them to us and we treat the impairments that we find and we hope for the best and nothing happens and we can't find anything and we research different methods and try all the tricks that we have and we send them back to the surgeon, the surgeon has tried all the tricks that they have to avoid surgery, then what else option do they have, right? They have to treat the impairments that they find and a cam lesion or a pincer lesion or whatever it might be can very easily cause these symptoms that these people are having. So at that point, you kind of have to get rid of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a hundred percent agreement. I feel like this conversation takes us back to like season one, where we're talking about like pain science and not in like the context of like biopsychosocial approach, approach, but I mean like true pain neuroimmunophysiology and understanding that because someone may have more inflammatory reactivity. They may have more sensitivity to load. There's a lot of other physiological variables at play other than just the biomechanical anatomical components that you see on an image. And just because someone has a more progressive femoral head bony growth, and that can be causing impingement, if their inflammatory sensitivity is a little bit lower and they can tolerate that, that type of joint stress and load without their body creating an excessive inflammatory response and sensitizing their nervous system, it's the same reason why someone could have tons of knee valgus. They gradually load into it and their nervous system and their immune system is used to that level of load and stress. They may just not generate an inflammatory response to create significant pain. Yeah. I mean, not to be cliche, I'll give the example. I'm really hypermobile and I sprain my ankles fairly often, but I'm not very inflammatory. I'm not very reactive from an inflammatory standpoint. I could sprain my ankle and it will not swell. And I will walk on it the next day. Like nothing happened. That's not to say spraining your ankle is not relevant to an injury. It's more of my reactivity to that type of stress and load through my ankles. Isn't significant enough to generate inflammation where if you were to take my wife, for example, who's a little bit more reactive from an inflammatory standpoint, her ankle would swell. Yeah. So yeah. thanks Great. for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll get into the rehab here. On day one, you kind of just start doing like your very basic, like glute sets, quad sets, transverse abdominus isometrics, working on some diaphragmatic breathing. The most important thing that is really emphasized 
that's kind of unique to these hip surgeries is foot flat weight bearing. They say it's like 20% weight bearing. And at the same time, you don't want to promote an excessive amount of hip flexion early on, because one of the big concerns is like, again, increased anterior hip joint forces, like hip flexor tendonitis, like TFL irritation. Like I remember shadowing, um, the ortho resident who was kind of specializing in hip and she always did like a lot of like anterior hip soft tissue work because that, that anterior hip musculature would get irritable. If not, if those precautions were not adhered to by the patient. Yeah. Um, so I had kind of one question. So you say post, or when you say day one, what, what do you mean by that? Like, like, when are these people normally getting into the clinic? Yeah, I would say they get in within like a week. I think they start pretty early. Yeah, I think so. That, that, that's kind of like what I've seen. Because I um, think the most important thing is they're in that brace, which limits a lot of their motion. So you're kind of doing just like gentle muscle activation and then starting to do like very gentle passive range of motion to loosen the hip. I mean, the, the hip is essentially, I mean, it's a more stable version of the shoulder, but it's ball and socket. You need good range of motion through your hip for appropriate gait and function and, and just life. So I think it's pretty early on. Um, they are starting range of motion, especially like circumduction, passive range of motion is huge for some therapeutic passive range. Yeah. And then I think some of the other like exercise precautions, right. Uh, so you don't want to do any sort of like active, like hip flexion, right. That might like put you at any, any more risk of like that kind of like, we kind of talked about that, like anterior kind of like hip translation that might happen. So avoiding some of that and then no, like distraction mobilizations of the hip, right? They just kind of like repair that labrum, which increases the kind of congruency of that socket. And you don't want to pull the femoral head and start to butt against it with the femoral head or femoral neck or something. And then how do you approach pain early on with these people? Do you say avoid it at all costs? A teeny bit's okay? Yeah, that's always such a hard question because I feel like you really have to sift through the quality of the pain. And I think we'll have a better, more in-depth discussion about this when we get to the case study in a little bit, just because when you have a trauma, like a surgery, I mean, an arthroscopy is less of a traumatic surgery than a periacetabular osteotomy. So I really try to respect the pain, at least for like the first two to three weeks, even longer, four weeks. Once I get to the strengthening, I'm a little bit less cautious with it, but I just know how important it is to prevent any early irritation and how counterproductive that early irritation can be. If, if it starts too fast, too soon, and it's just a surgery where you don't want to mess it up too early. Like, I feel like sometimes we're over cautious with, with surgeries. This is one where I feel like you should be appropriately cautious. I'm I'm kind of with you there. It's such like a fine little thing that they're kind of like repairing. It's not this like big, thick, meaty structure. Yeah. So I think be pretty cautious. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm usually on the opposite end where I'm like, all right, like we're kind of baby in this, like we, we can do a little more where this one I am. Yeah. I'm cautious. Yeah. So the main thing, as far as crutches go, they're in the brace, they're in crutches for about two weeks immediately after surgery. And then after two weeks, they progress kind of from that, like foot flat 20% to weight bearing is tolerated. And then again, I still am kind of cautious of even like walking speed, Like I kind of tell my patients, like, even if you're feeling good, be conscious of how fast you're walking, because that's going to increase a lot of like hip flexor activation and, you know, careful doing a lot of stairs still kind of like, don't try to like push stairs faster than you need to, just because I'm so cautious of irritating the anterior hip musculature and the hip flexors. 
Yeah, I don't really think I have anything else to add. That's, you know, it's, you know. And then as far as like range of motion restrictions, you don't want to do flexion beyond 90. You don't want to do extension past zero. So like if you ever have a reason to get them on their stomach, I'd probably do like a pillow under their stomach to kind of get them into a little bit of flexion and then eventually working your way into just like laying flat on their stomach just to do like a very gentle kind of like hip extension stretch. But again, you're not ever aggressively like stretching someone's hip flexor quad at this point. Yeah, you kind of talked, you talked about the no extension past zero there. And that ties right back into your point about walking too fast, because how can you possibly walk fast without getting a little bit of hip extension there? So 100%. we're cautious with like active hip flexion too. And if you're walking pretty fast, you're going to be ripping that hip forward. And that's probably not going to be great. So, All right. And then as far as like other random motions, abduction to 25 or 30, I mean, there's no reason to really take someone past 30 degrees of hip abduction anyways. If I mean, that's more to allow you to just kind of do some of your circumduction. Like if you think of circumduction, it's like, all right, you're going to go into a little bit of flexion. You're going to abduct them, maybe bring them back toward neutral and then come right back around. Like that's, that's really all you need. Um, if they're at 90 degrees of hip flexion, you don't want to engage into internal rotation. That is your fadir position. You don't want to put them in a hip impingement provocative test right after surgery. So that's how you can remember that one. Don't put them in fadir. And then you can do some internal rotation in prone. That's what their hip extended at zero and just limit it by their comfort. So that I like, I, I really like hip internal external rotation, like just like in a very small range, limited range and prone just to kind of get that rotational movement through the hip, but I'm not like pushing it aggressively. Yeah. And this surgery is no different than any other surgery where if they get in to see you early in rehab, it's not because they need to get strong now and we need to crank on the range of motion now. It's just to help things calm down a little bit quicker and give this person a little bit more comfort, one more education about what the heck they have going on in their hip, what's safe, what's not safe, and really just trying to get their body in a little bit more of a comfortable state a little bit sooner. I'm not doing anything crazy for them, just gentle movement pretty much. And I think if you look at it from like a load tolerance perspective, I think one of the most underrated, underused manual therapy interventions, especially with like high symptom irritability patients is range of motion. Like it, you are applying mechanical forces still to that joint and to that affected area. And it's the lowest dose manual therapy you can apply. So hip labral repair, not if you have a very high irritability patient, Use range of motion, passive range as a way to desensitize the nervous system, apply very low dose mechanical loading. It's, it's effective. And I think this protocol, it's like common sense because there's surgery and you're like, yeah, they need range of motion, but we're not using range of motion. Like you're doing it in the shoulder to stretch. It's range of motion to calm things down and keep things moving. Yeah. So let's move on to phase two, which you basically, you want to get them to full non-painful weight bearing going through your range of motion progression within the restrictions without any pain. And then once they get to this phase, you can start to do a little more with them. You can start including like a double leg press again, making sure that your seat height is somewhere where they're not like in a deep squat position. It's, you know, within reason you're you can progress to like step ups and step downs. It really opens up a lot of different things that you can do. As, as far as like a strengthening perspective goes like your typical hip strengthening, lower body strengthening routine can really start at this phase, even just like getting them on like gentle bike. 
Yeah, I think that's good. Um, so I had one of the patients that I treated for this like a while ago was kind of in this like, I think she was maybe like five or so weeks, four to five weeks, give or take. Came to the clinic the Monday after a weekend or whatever and told me that she had gone camping like the weekend before. And I said, oh, how'd it go? And she's like, not good. She's like, I sat in a camping chair for like four hours and I stood up and my hip is horrible. And after that point, her hip was like never the same. Like she was doing super great, no issues with anything. And because she was feeling good, she pushed it beyond like what she was ready to do. And so I treated her for another like months and months after that. And it never looked as good as it did prior to that camping trip when she sat in a camping chair with her hip probably adducted and 120 degrees of flexion and never the same. So this, this time here, we're starting to get a little bit, we can do a little bit more, but still be careful because this is still a pretty vulnerable time for that repair. And what's so like frustrating about that is like, I feel like in our mind and even a lot of our patients' minds, we think of a surgery and we're like, well, like it's pretty sturdy. Like you're going to have to do something really crazy to mess it up. And I feel like this is one of those surgeries where like, even though the actual disruption of the repair may have not occurred, just developing a stress overload while the area is very irritable. Some was like ties back into your pain science takes them all the way back to square one. Like for her to kind of reset, she probably would have had to go back to like day one, week one of post-op rehab, put the brace back on, start the range of motion, like reset the whole process to even have a, like a chance of success of getting back to where she was. But that's just not how it operates in rehab. Like, or like, are you going to like, how are we going to tell a patient? All right. Now, like we're going to go back to day one and start you from the beginning. Like it just doesn't happen. So we try to push through it and then it's just like, well, it's never the same, you know? So it's on crutches, try to take it back a little bit, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, once you let it, once you let cat out the bag, it's like, not, I don't know if that's a good analogy. Yeah. I think we all understood. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Moving on to phase three, you want to normalize their hip flexor strength to about four minus out of five hip abduction, adduction, extension, IR, ER, all to four out of five. And then you can get to to phase three. This is about week nine to 12, you really want to start strengthening hip flexion a little more now using like the multi-hip machine. Again, you're not pushing it aggressively, but still in a very gradual and loaded controlled way. You still don't want to get into like any contact activities, still no aggressive hip flexor strengthening. Again, it's, it's considered aggressive if it elicits pain. So you want to avoid any painful hip flexion. And then the criteria for progressing to sports specific training is hip flexor muscle strength a four plus out of five and, and all the other lower extremity as well. Yeah. So I think one thing that I try to avoid with these people, when you enter, when you start introducing like active hip flexion, do it short lever first. So knee bent, maybe some supine marching, something super simple, and then slowly work up from there. Don't go right to a straight leg raise. That's really hard. It's just like up in like the shoulder when we have like a, a rotator cuff surgery, when you start to introduce active motion, it's you know, up the wall, slowly sliding their arm up the wall, um, maybe even adding a band when you start to add resistance before you lengthen that arm up and really start to add resistance at the end of a long lever. Your legs are really heavy and the psoas does not have the best lever arm to move it. So yeah, I think short lever first and then very slowly over time start to work into some long lever. Yeah, that's, I, lo- I love that point, Mike. I have nothing to add, but yeah, great point. And then moving on to Phase four, 
that's going to be getting them back into jogging, hopping, agility. There's really not like a concrete return to sport. It's really kind of like a hybrid of everything we would do for like lower extremity functional testing. But you do want them to have full range of motion in all planes. They need their cardiovascular endurance to be consistent with the demands of their sport. Just because if they fatigue, they're going to fall into some more compromising movement patterns and potentially compromise their their surgery. You want normal strength, flexibility to the core, lower extremities. I think that's something we didn't talk about either is you are hitting the core during all of this rehab. Like you do want to start getting into like some different core progressions. And that's more toward like your later strengthening phase, preparing to get into phase four of of return to sport. And you could do your Y balance test. You want to look at anterior reach within four centimeters, limb to limb comparison, and within six centimeters, limb to limb comparison on posterior medial and posterior lateral. And then they're also doing a single leg hop for distance, triple hop, triple crossover hop with at least 90% symmetry. And then looking at double leg squat followed by single leg squat off an 18 inch box. So very similar things that you would do to like an ACL return to sport. I feel like maybe not as much, but very similar components as far as like a Y balance and some hopping and some movement quality testing. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I try and get creative whenever I do like return to sport testing and just like make up my own test to see like how this leg matches up with the other one. So Sometimes you can try and do like a, you know, peak force output. Like I kind of mentioned before, I use like a crane scale. So sometimes I'll do like an ABAD doctor ratio or something. Kind of see how that looks, compare it side to side. Also, like you can do some sort of other random things. Like, like you can have them do like a single leg RDL to failure with an arbitrary weight and just see how it looks side to side and just have them do it make sure the movement quality looks good as they start to fatigue make sure they get the same total of number reps and use that to kind of like in your own brain have some clinical reasoning around like why you're saying that it's safe for them to return to sport one like a why balance like people are going to pass that if they have good motion and okay enough strength they're going to pass that probably earlier than they're ready to go back to sport so checking like a fairly heavy strength, max endurance, and then some power output, I think is probably pretty important. Yeah. And honestly, I am so on board with just not trying things that aren't established, but at some point, all of the tests that we use to assess return to sport or even like manual therapy techniques that we use, somebody made up at some point in time. So like, I'm more in the realm of like, let's develop things that are sport specific, because if somebody plays soccer versus hockey or versus something else, the demands of their sport are just different. So like looking at a hop, a hopping test for a hockey player to me, doesn't make sense. Yeah. They never hop. Yeah, exactly. So like, how is this a return to sport for a hockey? You know what I mean? Like, so I'm so on board with just kind of like individualizing the return to sport testing. And then the final phase is a depth jump off an 18 inch box and then landing into a squat and looking at like the fluidity of the motion. Yeah, I think that's good. I, I, th- I think, you know, you're kind of bringing up like m- movement quality points, which I think are really important for these people, because anytime they go into deeper ranges of hip flexion, it's probably going to be a little bit kind of scary for them, especially because you're avoiding that for so long during the surgery process, right? So we have, you know, they're saying return to sport at, what are they saying? Like 12 to 16 weeks, maybe like 16 weeks or so, give or take, return to sport. Yeah, let's see. I think um, it's going to be close to 16 to 20. Phase three is supposed to end in about 12 weeks. But again, I'm thinking it's going to be 16 to 20 by the time they get through this entire return to sport phase. It doesn't really give a specific time period. It's not like with the ACL where like 
before nine months, you have a significant increase of, of retear. I think it's after 12 weeks, you should be starting the sports specific. And then however long it takes them to get there. I think at this point, there's always context. Are they an NHL athlete who's trying to make it back for the playoffs and they can really just go through all of this progression because they're athletic and fit? Or is it a soccer player who's out of season and you might just say like, hey, like, do we really want to rush this and let's wait till week 20? So I, I think context is important too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, most of, like one of the protocols that I have looked at before has avoiding squatting below 90 degrees all the way through even like phase four to like week 16. So at that point, it's like you're saying that they're like done with rehab, but they're still supposed to be a little bit careful squatting past 90. Like what if they play football? Like you can't just <laughs> avoid that when you get tackled. Like it's just, you know, so, so there's, I think, yeah, I think kind of that return to play time frame, time frame might be a lot different if you have someone that's, you know, maybe a swimmer versus someone that's playing a sport that's a, that's a little bit less predictable. Right. No, I, I agree. And one thing that I like about this article is that it literally gives you exercises for each phase of rehab. So if you want this article, just like reach out to us and we can email you the, the reference. I think it's, it's brilliant. It talks you through the rehab, very concise way, gives you a whole bunch of exercise that could literally be your whole program. And it gives you guidance on like when you can start some hip mobs, if they do start to get a little tight, once the repair takes hold, gives you a nice like walking, jogging, running progression scheme to help them gradually return to running. It's, it's great. And it's supported by two-year outcomes. The overall satisfaction with the surgery was 7.86 with a maximum score of 10. So I think that's pretty good. So, so is that the average score was 7.86 out of 10 was like their satisfaction? Yeah. Like overall, how satisfied are you with the score from zero to 10? And I think the average was 7.86. So like between a seven and an eight is what most people. So pretty good. But also remember kind of take that with like a grain of salt, right? And, you know, it's the authors say, oh, we got such good results. But like, what, what does a good result mean with a surgery? I think that's right. like that is kind of ignored a lot of times when we kind of like read through research, we say, Oh, this article said that this surgery has good results. Great. I can expect my person to be perfect when they're done. And that's just not the case. That's an average of, you know, 7.86 on a satisfaction, which overall is like, an that's okay. Like it's not great. Like it's okay. So if they're in crazy amounts of pain before, then yeah, it's like definitely better. But I think setting expectations is, is pretty important too, that unless this person's like a super high level athlete that, like I, that, I mean, obviously your goal is to get everyone back to like as high of a level of activity as like they possibly can. But yeah, I think, you know, 7.86 is pretty good, but I mean, it's not a 10 out of 10, which is what these people are hoping for when they go get surgery. So I think reason, setting reasonable expectations is important for you. Yeah. I think some people are on two spectrums of expectations. People are like, all right, I had a surgery and it's going to be different. It's never going to be the same. And then there's other people that are like, well, I had the surgery. Like, how can I still have any type of pain? Um, and I think at some point, once you have a surgery, there's always going to be an increased level of awareness to that area. You might feel a certain sensation in the repaired hip that you would rate as like a one or two out of 10 because you know you had the surgery. Where if you felt that random sensation in your healthy hip, you would probably just be like, oh, that's weird. And like, never think about it again. So I think there is like a psychosocial component to and it also increased, mo- increased sensory representation in the homunculus of the injured site that kind of like increases that 
awareness to the area as well. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I mean, that, that sensation in itself brings you down from like a 10 is like, I'm back to normal to like, well, I still kind of feel it sometimes. So I'm going to give it an eight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. And then some talking points that the authors hit at the end of this article, they really emphasize the restoration of normal gay patterns to is directly related to reduction of pain and increased activity levels. So this goes back to what we were discussing about like the foot flat, zero degrees of hip extension, not really increasing any anterior hip joint stress or not increasing any anterior hip, like hip musculature irritation during gait is directly related to how they feel later, which is very important. And then weight-bearing exercise demonstrates significantly higher EMG activity than non-weight-bearing exercise uh, for hip abduction exercises. So just being cautious of like your transition from table exercise to like sidestepping or anything else that's off the table. And then again, they're really emphasizing to avoid any excessive stretching or painful range of motion as this also has significant negative effects on irritating the repaired tissue and slowing progression. Yeah. I don't really think I have anything else to add. And then as far as return to play, this article kind of references and says that it usually can take about six to nine months to return. So, I mean, reasonable. Yeah. I mean, it's very reasonable. I mean, I think the 20 weeks puts you at like five months, which is kind of what I was thinking. I think it's doable, but to go through that whole return to sport progression and do it without pain and do it in a way where you have limb symmetry and movement quality, I would say minimum five months, but six to nine months, I would say is probably conservative and where you should be. Yeah, I agree. It's just so hard to get back enough strength to go back to sport, to be able to protect your hip, especially like a cutting sport where you're just going to be needing those glutes and everything for those, for that change of direction and your quad, which is also going to get weaker and everything in order to change direction and not have your hip be at greater risk for like, increased stress like unless you are same, like, like you said kind of like a high level athlete that has access to you know get into your training staff and strength and conditioning staff like daily for perfect treatment yeah i mean i it, i picture sport at four to five months being being pretty darn hard right all right anything else mike before we move on to hip preservation surgery no uh that was a more fun discussion than i was anticipating so yeah yeah, I think so too. Wow. Really, really had a good time with that one. All right. Let's get into hip preservation surgery. So this is going to encompass any procedure that involves a periacetabular osteotomy, proximal femoral osteotomy, cartilage restoration, surgical dislocation. So the one that we're going to focus on is periacetabular osteotomy. One of our professors was kind of involved in like helping to kind of get this surgery to where it is today which is kind of cool i think have you so you have one now yeah um, do you know anything about like the history of the surgery or how it got to where it is or not really i don't know too much about the history essentially there's one physician i think at the children's hospital here that performs it okay. and i if i think i know who you're referencing as far as the professor i would say i think he's highly involved on it i mean i've asked him questions about my current case and he's given me phenomenal advice. So it seems like he would be the one that was involved with it, but I, I don't know anything about the history. As far as what I know, they basically break your pelvis and reorient the acetabulum to get it in a more advantageous position where it won't be as, uh, 
it won't be causing as much stress in the hip joint. Let's go into the surgery. They usually do it for like hip dysplasia. I'm assuming a retroverted acetabulum. I don't know how common that is, but I'm assuming that would be an indication just because it would create some impingement and increase anterior hip joint stress. The main things are, they're kind of similar. It's a flat foot touchdown weight bearing defined as 10 to 20 pounds. They're usually doing like a labor reconstruction or repair with this anyways. So you still have your whole like labor protocol that we just talked about on top of the individual component of having someone break your pelvis and essentially nail it back together. So that's definitely traumatic. And the article argues that going non-weight bearing actually causes more irritation than trying to go just like flat foot weight bearing because trying to hold your leg in a non-weight bearing position creates a little bit of co-contraction and the iliopsoas muscle and proximal rectus end up creating a lot of joint stress and joint irritation from just trying to maintain the leg in such a stiff position, which is brilliant because I would have never thought of that. Yeah, it makes perfect sense when someone says it, but until someone says it, <laughs> you're never going to think of it. Right, right. Um, so again, you want to be... You want to have early rehabilitation for this. You want to prevent any muscular arthrogenic inhibition from the surgical process and previous pain processes, facilitate lower extremity circulation, cryotherapy for pain and swelling. And these individuals did some type of prehab. And I feel like most people that get this surgery, I don't know if it's formal prehab, but they at least try conservative PT before going into this surgery. So I would consider that prehab. I mean, you're just trying to get them strong and decrease their pain and improve motion. So most people I feel like would have some type of physical therapy before they jump straight to getting this surgery. Yeah. This is not, this is never going to be one of those like first line of defense surgeries. No, absolutely not. All right. So jumping into phase one, gentle range of motion, passive range of motion, just trying to get everything to calm down, get it moving. You're using isometrics. This article actually references gluteal isometrics have been suggested to reduce iliopsoas spasm and decrease anterior hip pain associated with increased hip flexor and adductor tone caused by intra-articular effusion, which I think is pretty interesting. The reference of the article is from 2013, Arthrogenic Neuromuscular, Neuromusculature Inhibition, a Foundational Investigation of Existence in the Hip Joint. So I think that's pretty interesting and maybe applicable to other hip patients. I don't, I don't know. I haven't read this article in detail, but they reference it and it's interesting and they advocate for it. So take it for what it is. The modality of choice is icing for swelling control and elevation is usually discouraged because it places the iliopsoas and proximal rectus in a relatively shortened position. So you'd want to avoid elevating after the surgery. And then again, we're just going to focus on range of motion, muscular activation. If there's a neurodynamic component, they do advocate for neurodynamic mobilization at some point to help restore neural tissue mobility, the reduction of neural edema and improving circulation. And we will talk more in depth about neurodynamics in this particular patient group, as it's something I'm doing with my current case and kind of talk through the reasoning and what neurodynamic mobilizations actually do. And then kind of like we talked about with the labor repairs, you want to do some prone lying, help them kind of not get into like a very hip flex, a shortened hip flexor position. You want to make sure that they at least have their zero degrees of hip extension. So just like a gentle hip flexor stretch. And then, you know, once they're able to, and they can get comfortable in the upright position, you want them to start a little bit of stationary bike. The seat height should not surpass the 90 degree of hip flexion restriction. So make sure to get that seat a little bit higher so that they're not passing that, that 90 degrees of hip flexion. And then, you know, early phase, you know, this is your 
zero to four weeks, you're doing gentle bike, gentle isometrics, passive range, prone lying. And then once you kind of get through this phase, their pain should be controlled without any type of narcotics. There should be evidence of healing at the different osteotomy sites. And that should be confirmed through radiographic imaging. Yeah. You kind of brought up the, like the bike a little bit. And I think that sometimes we kind of think about like a lot, a lot of clinics have uh, like an upright bike and then a recumbent bike. And when we're trying to be careful with a little bit of hip flexion, the recumbent bike's easier to get on for our post-op patients, but it's also a little bit harder to avoid those deeper ranges of hip flexion. So I, I tend to try and go upright bike as much as I can. I mean, when I'm trying to avoid that like deeper hip flexion, but if, if they can avoid it on the recumbent, sure. But I think upright is probably better. Yeah. A hundred percent. And then when we get to phase two, it's usually between four to six weeks. You may get some tightness in the posterior capsule, which can limit hip, hip flexion as well as internal rotation. So you may want to add in some quadruped rocking, which limits a little bit of like anterior joint conflict and can help you get a little bit of posterior capsule stretching for the hip joint, something that we don't talk about too often, but definitely a good technique for that. And then you can start doing some lower extremity stretching, quads, hamstrings, ER, IR as needed. I like to do ER, IR and prone. I just feel like they're stabilized on the table. It's very protective. I can kind of find that like barrier where like restriction or pain starts and kind of like bounce in and out of that barrier. And it's just, it just feels very safe to me. Yeah. And so this is like phase two, safe to kind of get them in quadruped at this point, correct? Yeah. You're restoring range of motion. You're preparing for full weight bearing. So again, even being in quadruped in itself is kind of like a very controlled weight bearing of just the hip joint. You're kind of like eliminating the ankle and like you're putting a little pressure through the knee, but like you're loading the hip. So yeah, it's, it's safe and it's going to help decrease some of that tightness through the posterior capsule. And then once you're in this phase, you want to start adding in some more TA, external oblique work, knee extensor strengthening. And the knee extensor strengthening is pretty important. It's been correlated with ambulatory ability after hip surgery and should be monitored in this phase. So I'm, I'm going to go broken record Dave on them because I know guys, I'm a broken record. It's one of my downfalls. They need the knee extensor strength to eccentrically control knee flexion during walking, and it helps normally restore that gait pattern. So we're, we're back to it. The knee extensor strength for eccentric control of knee flexion during loading phase. It's huge. Yeah. And then at this point, we're, we're okay going into a little bit kind of like deeper ranges of hip flexion and stuff like that, correct? Because we're kind of about six weeks, maybe start to ease into it, depending on what the... Yeah, um, you're kind of easing into it based on pain. Like you're letting pain kind of be your guide. Cool. Yeah. Cause I was thinking with like, you know, if you're looking to get them on like a knee extension machine, same thing, be careful. Cause that's going to put them into a little bit more hip flexion than you want probably. So maybe teach them how to kind of sag their butt down a little bit on the machine early on. If that's how you kind of choose to do it. Yeah. If not, you can always do it, you know, kind of like reclined a little bit on the table with a band or ankle weight or whatever. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking more of like a, either like wall sit at 45 degrees. If, if they're past that weight bearing point, Maybe some like short arc quads with a little bit of weight with an eccentric focus, some TKEs in standing, that type of stuff. Because I feel like the quadriceps for gait pattern, it's less about total strength. It's not like you're doing like return to sport and you're looking at like peak torque values. It's like, it's more neuromuscular activation. Like, do they have activation of their quad and can it do its job in gait? And then again, you want to do some muscle re-education of the hip abductor complex, hip adductor group and the rotators. You see a lot of gluteal dysfunction in, the, in this group, and 
this article even references what we were discussing earlier about gluteal dysfunction is commonly observed in the presence of hip pain. And one of the causes can be the excessive anterior translation of the femoral head during hip extension from gluteal dysfunction. So Sarman has some work on this. This article references it. I really firmly am on this team. So sticking by it. Gotta get those booty gains. Yeah. And um, another article supporting poor recruitment of glute max, maybe mass is increased activation of the adductor magnus. And I actually see this a lot. Like whenever you have someone that has glute weakness and they have this like TFL irritation, and then they start to get some adductor pain as well. I'm like, this is textbook. This is classic. So always be on the look for any like hypertonicity through the adductors, work on it with some soft tissue. And I think that'll get you on the right track. And then once you're able to weight bear symmetrically through both extremities and they're able to withstand like propulsion of like weight bearing with walking, then you can start to think about progressing them to phase three. And most of the patients will be limited to weight bearing about 50% of their body weight for the first two weeks of the progression, and then be able to demonstrate about 75% of weight bearing through the third week without any abnormalities or complaints of pain. When you say phase three, about how many weeks after surgery, give or take, are we when, when, when we're expected to kind of be starting this phase? Yeah. So it's after week six. Okay. Yeah. So uh, phase two is about four to six weeks. And then once we get to phase three, your whole idea is to, sorry, before I go to phase three, let me give you some examples of exercises that they used during phase two. They looked at some quadruped rocking, stretching of the quads, hamstring, hip flexor, hip rotators. Again, I would say more gentle calf raises, mini squats, active range of motion of the hip to 45 degrees. And I'm going to advocate for what you mentioned earlier. That's like hook lying, supine march in a limited range, short lever. Even active right. heel slides. Yeah. hundred percent active heel slides. Yeah. Great, great point. That's, that's a good one. All right. Phase three, normalized gait and improved strength. So that's kind of where it becomes a little bit less cautious and you can kind of start to get them back doing like the fun stuff per se. So even when they're allowed to fully bear weight, you still want to have them use bilateral crutches to improve their pelvofemoral mechanics until their hip abductor strength and trunk control is sufficient to control any antalgia they still might have. And there's some articles that they reference to support this saying that knee extensor and hip abductor strength greatly affect cadence and should be addressed. And I agree. I mean, those are two big ones for gait, knee extensor and hip abductor strength. If I'm doing any gait or balance for like even the older patients, I'm hammering knee extensor and hip abductor strength and then some movement re-education through gait. And then if you see any poor control during their actual gait, especially during hip extension, this may indicate some psoas inhibition. I haven't heard too much about this. They reference an article, but I, I haven't really looked into this one too much. Yeah, I got nothing. And then limited infrequent hip flexor exercises should be incorporated into rehabilitation strategies to prevent redundancy of muscular activity and potential exacerbation of associated tendinopathy. So this is a brilliant point because I'm actually going through this with my current patient and I'm not going to get into it too much, but this kind of comes back to something we've talked about through our other episodes, when it comes to rehab, it's kind of like, okay, we did this on day one, we're going to make it harder on day two, harder day three. And we have this very like linear progression of like volume and intensity of exercise that just goes like progressively higher, where I think what this is saying is like, listen, we're not making this linear. If you're doing some hip flexor activation and strengthening on one day, the next day you might just hold and completely focus on the glute and let those hip flexors recover. So you're sprinkling in some like 
not active recovery days, but I would say some movement variability days so that they're not always activating and stressing the hip flexors. Yeah, that's a good point. Because the, the, they're going to get a little bit just with like they're walking. Um, they're they're going to be kicking on that so as a little bit. So even, you know, just that little bit runs the risk of overdoing it. So why would you want to add in extra when you can easily just take a day off and it's not going to negatively affect anything? Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a great point and it ties into any rehab hip or anything else. It's like, why are we doing the same thing every single time and then making it progressively harder when maybe they just need to recover one day? So I think it's just a good, good point to take for any, any rehab. And at this point, they can be doing the elliptical sidestepping, step up, step down, progressive resistance exercises, leg extension, hamstring curl. And then after this, they, they're moving on to just like advanced strengthening. They shouldn't have any limitations with their ADLs. They should, their range of motion should be normalized compared to the uninvolved side, normal gait. And overall, they should be relatively pain-free before getting to this final phase. And on this phase, we're focusing on improving muscular endurance, cardiovascular fitness, dynamic stability with a gradual progression of non-impact activity tolerance. And so about what, what time frame does this kind of go up to, to when we're just strengthening no impact? So at this point, it doesn't specify. I think this is more of a symptom type of feel once you get here. I don't think it's going to be a time-based thing because Again, by the time they've gotten to this type of phase, they're probably at least eight to 10 weeks out, if not further. I'm thinking more like 12 to 16. And as far as like the repair taking hold or reconstruction taking hold, the bone kind of like finally, I don't want to say getting to full strength, but healing and not being as vulnerable as it was in the early phases is all kind of there. So you're not really protecting much at this point. And you're more kind of in that like neuroimmuno pain physiology stuff that I always harp on as far as like, where's their load tolerance and how can we gradually load them to build that to get them pain-free in their daily life and functional activities. Yeah, I think that's good. Do you know how often they repeat the x-rays on these? Has your patient had like x-rays repeated frequently after surgery? Do they do it, you know, at set intervals? So my patient is a little bit unique in that she did not see me immediately after surgery. She actually saw me about five or six months after surgery. And what she saw me for was a a complication of a hematoma causing a femoral and obturator nerve entrapment. But I think for her, it's a whole different ballgame because of the nerve component. And that's kind of how she ended up on my schedule. But I don't know how often they take images. I know that she had a repeat periacetabular osteotomy surgery because one of her screws got bent. Mm. I mean, maybe she had like imaging at like a three or six month follow-up, but I think hers was more like a year later. She was continuing to have like persistent pain and disability and was telling people like, hey, like something's wrong. And then they did imaging and found that like one of the screws was like bent and loose. Yeah. So her whole history is like two and a half years, three years. Cool. That sounds good. Yeah. So going back to like the advanced strength strengthening, this article references the idea of psoas inhibition or fatigue, increasing TFL and adductor longus activation. And you may see this throughout their rehab. So going back to what the clinician who we mentored with did, she typically did a lot of like grass and instrument assisted soft tissue to like the TFL and the adductors to kind of calm that down and combat that throughout rehab. And I've honestly tried it on a few hip patients and it's very successful, especially like doing some TFL soft tissue. Yeah. I found like adductor soft tissue for me and then one of like the, the groin stuff that I end up treating, not this specifically, but like for me, like adductor stuff seems to work pretty well. So Cool. Yeah. And then return to sport. I mean, I don't know how 
many of these actually return to like full participation in high level sports. Yeah. I know for my patient that I reference, her goal is to at least like return and like maybe play some intramural soccer, which like based on what I'm seeing, I don't think is out of the question, but I think it's going to take some time. I think she's demonstrating progress enough where I think it's definitely a possibility though. Yeah. But I mean, what are your thoughts on return to like a decent amount of running, like maybe running, you know, anything up to like maybe like a half marathon or something like that. Do you think that that that's in the cards with like that amount of repetitive loading? I think they're just going to run into so many like overuse injuries based on. So I think I'm going to be a broken record here, Mike, and I'm going to go back to like the pain neuroimmunophysiology, but I think it's, a good conversation to have. So let's use my patient, for example, who had two periacetabular osteotomies, labor repair, labor reconstruction, um, some type of nerve entrapment, let's say like two and a half to three years of repetitive trauma to her hip and pelvis on top of the pain processes that were there before the surgery. So what I'm, my whole theory behind the the pain neuroimmunophysiology stuff is the more trauma and pain that you have in an area for a longer period of time, not only do you have those like nervous system changes, like decreased spinal neural thresholds, decreased cortical inhibition, increased sensory representation in the homunculus. I think there's an actual immunological effect to chronic pain where they have a smaller margin of error for their loading. So like a healthy individual could run between like, let's say a mile in three miles and be fine where for my patient trying to get back to running the difference between a mile and a mile and a half is a little bit more significant and amplified. Like that margin of error is for loading is more narrow. And I would kind of make the analogy to like an arthritic hip. The qualities of that hip joint are so impaired or dysfunctional because of the lack of smooth surface, the decreased joint space, where for my older chronic folks, I view it in the same way is I have a very narrow margin of error between therapeutic exercise and overdosing them. So I think for someone with a chronic history, like my patient, or maybe less of a chronic history, but still somewhat chronic with just having the surgery straight up, I think it's possible, but I think they have to train for a longer period of time. And I think their margin of error of dosing that progression into like a 13 mile run is going to take longer and a little bit more precision where maybe they would need the help of like a physical therapist or even just like a consultant physical therapist to help them guide that load progression and really assess symptom response and give them advice you know, weekly or even bi-weekly on, on what they should be doing, whether they need to back off or do more. I think it's possible, but I think there's a lot of variables at play there. And I think the individual's inflammatory reactivity is going to be one of them. That's a very good answer, David. So I, I don't know, Mike, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I really went on a tangent. That's kind of like my passion is like looking at pain science, not from like the biopsychosocial aspect. I, I respect that part, but I think the part that's being overlooked is the immunological components as far as like decreased thresholds for generating an inflammatory response, how sensitive is it to infl inflammation? Are there any residual inflammatory biomarkers that perpetuate future inflammatory responses? So I think these are all things that can continue to be explored. And it's another dimension of chronic pain that we haven't touched on. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these people just aren't going to have a crazy high level of activity early on. If they're a candidate for surgery, they've been in pain with activity probably for a fairly long time. Um, so their activity level probably is not as high as some others. I would 
kind of think for those like rare few that you might ever see that want to that have goals of getting back to something yeah like, like for me in my brain a half marathon seems like oh, seems like a, a bit of a stretch I, I would probably encourage them maybe go more the 5k route um if yeah. they ever want to get back to something like that but. i think i'm biased because i had a pelvic surgery where my sacrum was fused my ilium to my sacrum was fused and like my surgeon was pretty much like yeah like in 10 years you'll be walking on a cane and like have a significant limp and like this just is what it is and I was remember walking out of that, like meeting and being like, all right, well, that guy's a jerk. And <laughs> no, I'm not. And like, here I am, like working in a busy clinic, seeing like 20 patients a day, like running around like a maniac. Yeah. Do I have soreness? Yeah. But I can still do everything that I wanted to do. And I kind of like defied his prediction, which like, I, I just feel like you don't know. I think if you have a good understanding of pain science and understand the, the, the loading aspect and component and can know how to manipulate your therapeutic exercise to create physiological change. All right. Well, guys, I, I really went on some rants today. I didn't even drink my coffee and I really ranted. Wow. It's a natural energy. Anything else you wanted to touch on, Mike? I think we went a little over time, which I'm okay with. I think this was a more stimulating discussion than I was expecting based on the content, but. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, I going way longer than I thought, but I had fun. Uh, not really. I mean, I think we just kind of touched on a lot of like basic surgical principles and just applied it to a couple specific hip surgeries. So calm it down. Don't screw up the surgery and then slowly get them strong again. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about this surgery is that it has like a few random little like precautions, like the flat foot weight bearing. There's like some subtleties to it. It's like some nuances that you wouldn't think of. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as Mike and I did. If you're enjoying the content, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want any of the references to anything that we mentioned in this podcast, shoot us a message, a DM through Facebook, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And thanks again for listening. Thanks, everybody.